Sometimes a uh, little less money, but I think uh, there was enough food for everyone, I think. Are you, are you, were you okay with uh, the lunch today on short notice? All right. Uh, before we start the, the question period, uh, I just want to remind you that next week is uh, SACBA's annual general meeting. And we will, there's a funeral in this place at 1 o'clock, I believe. So, so we will be right next door, which is a smaller room. Uh, and it will hold like up to 40 people, I think. So that's usually uh, the amount of people we get for an ATM anyway. And it will be a free meal uh, with a paid up membership. So if you like to renew your membership, or you have to renew your membership, and Elise got her pen ready to write out a receipt, right? I have, I'm ready. Okay, so with that out of the way. Um, Sorry, can you explain where we should enter? We should sample through here. Yes. Yeah, you, yeah, because the funeral is not till 1. 1.30. So you can still. 1.30. But it has a separate entrance anyway, so we'll, we'll make sure that the... On the, on the, north, on the south side? Same, oh, just, just down from this door a little ways, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. But so you can come in here. You just can't leave. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Until you pay your membership. All right. I think there will be a lot of questions, so... Uh, we're going to get going right away. I see we have a question already. Uh, try and keep your yeah. Try and keep it to questions. That's what it's all about. But uh, do feel free to tell a short story ahead of it. Uh, so, without further ado, we we'll welcome Al back to the podium, and he can uh, tell us where's that. Am I on? Okay. Are you on? Yeah? Okay. Hi, Al. I'm Henning Mundell. Um, you made one reference to a gentleman. I think he was Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, by name, it sounded like that. Do you have data on sort of a, a differential almost allergic reactions genetically, globally, in relation to alcohol. We've heard a lot of people, that a lot of people in China, for example, cannot drink much alcohol, but it's a genetic condition. And I just wonder, do you have some kind of an overview globally where there's more of the susceptibility, if one can call it that? Pardon me? Okay. Um, not really in that sense. Not, um, mostly the genetics are ethnically, at least that I, that I discovered in my research, uh, were ethnically oriented. And they had to do with chromosomes, primarily chromosomes and the deficiency. For example, the native people have a, a chromosome deficiency. That's a scientific fact. That's not something that I'm talking about as a prejudiced white guy. 
That's a, that's a, uh, a scientific fact. In regard to the Chinese, they have a, a chromosome composition um, that gives, and as a matter of fact, to some extent, I think the Japanese too, um, and um, I don't want to say an immunity, but a, a, a greater tolerance for alcohol. I've been in Japan and uh, times uh, with young people and uh, some of the uh, gangs almost of, uh, of Japanese, especially after some kind of a competition and the booze that they, that they consumed, I was gonna say inhaled, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It has to do with cannabis. But anyhow, uh, it's really quite surprising, given, given their size. Now, you know, they're not all six feet tall and 200 pounds. They're you know, smaller. And, and what they consume in sake, for example, and uh, other alcohols, was really quite surprising, but that's just, that's an observation. The science says that they have a chromosome differential. So, uh, but I can't give you, I, you know, much more than that as far as, as uh, ethnicities go or any kind of profiling, because it's hard to, it's hard to factor it out. There's, the ethnicity, but it's closely related to cultures. Well, I don't know what the you know what the uh, the chromosome competition composition I should say of uh, of Russians. I spent time in Russia uh, teaching and, and consulting, and amount of booze that they consume, vodka. I, I remember my first experience there, and I tell you, it was memorable because. They shoot them. So I tried that to be one of the boys, eh? Once, twice. By the time they got to three, I was nursing them because I'm getting a little dizzy, eh? So I mean, they're shooting those doggone shots of vodka like drinking water. So that's a, that's a culture. Now these guys were tended to be athletic once upon a time. <laughs> Not so much anymore, but you know they. But it's cultural, so you know I'd have to be much more expert than I am in terms of differentiating between the uh, ethnicity and and uh, and the culture. It's kind of intermingled, eh? and then you get into the individual physiology, and that this is one very very complicated subject. It's incredibly complicated, really. I've dealt with a lot of complicated problems as a management consultant, but this was the most complicated because I'm basically I was going up a learning curve from about zero. Thanks, Al. Very helpful. My question I don't think has any answer. I don't think you do either. What can you do about it? Um, the, when a person is told not to do it, they do it. Um, the reason why I started to drink was my dad was a Methodist minister. And he told me not to drink it. That's how I started to drink. <laughs> Prohibition didn't work either. So what can you do about it? Well, 
I'll start with a personal experience since that's what you referred to. My first drink was when I was at my sister's wedding. And uh, so they had a toast to the bride. And I'd been out playing football in the, uh, outside the Legion, actually, in Wetaskiwin, where my, uh, my sister's reception was. And uh, so I was thirsty. I was all dressed up. My folks bought me a brand new brown, brown suit and a white tie on. I was part of the, part of the uh, entourage for the, for the uh, I was going to say the funeral for the, uh, <laughs> my brother-in-law recently passed away, so that's kind of on my mind, I guess. Anyhow, uh, so I went into, to, uh, you know, I was called into the uh, hall for, uh, for these toasts. Well, there was a small glass, but it wasn't as big as this one here. But I was thirsty, and I took, and I just gulped it down. And all I remember is the top of my head was really hot, and I didn't touch alcohol until I was well into university, and probably about the third year. Now, part of that was not only that experience, and, and I'd seen other examples of the adverse effects of alcohol. One that I was going to cite in my presentation, but I had to leave it out. But I'm, and I'm not a teetotaler. I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm somewhat sanctimonious about this. I'm not. But I've had enough experience to know that going back to that first top of the head experience, that uh, you got to be really careful. And yes, there may be a a medicinal benefit if it's one a day or five a week or red wine as opposed to white wine or whatever, but I'm not advocating. What can you do about it? Well, I suppose every give every kid about age 10 or 12 a good shot. <laughs> so that's a flip, that's a flippant answer. But when you, you know, you get down to the serious nature of it, you know, there's, there's all kinds of public policy implications. And, and we know that prohibition doesn't work. We tried, that was tried back when. I, I think we need more government regulation. For example, if you're driving to Calgary on Highway 21 or 23, whatever it is, and you're going through Vulcan, what's within 50 feet of the highway? There's a booze store. You drive around the city, close to, close to main arteries. Naturally, I mean, if you're a marketing man or a woman, you want to you put your store where there's a lot of traffic. I, I put, I'd bring in regulation. Now, I know it's going to be difficult because you already have so many that are established, and I don't know how you, how you turn them back. Uh, but I wouldn't put any, allow any more. I certainly would put some guidelines and restrictions on the, on the lifestyle advertising where you see all these young people having such a wonderful time, pardon me, out socially, playing sports or whatever. You don't see them hungover. You don't seem like you were talking about, you know, at lunch there. You don't see the, the big football player that, that 
I experienced uh, one of my when I was a residence hall counselor in at the University of Denver, who on a weekend you're talking about weekends. I was going to mention this to you, uh, but they you know they have a booze up, and he had just brought his car back from Minnesota, and uh, so he and four or five other guys went off drinking, came back to the residence hall for dinner, and then they were gonna go up to Fort Collins to, I don't know, some kind of a party or dance or whatever the social activity was. And I could see that these kids were, were already intoxicated, so I talked three of them into staying. Well, the other two that went, cut the big, big, uh, what was his name? Oh, it escapes me right now, Ben, I think it was. Anyhow, he cut the corner with his car, crashed headlong into uh, a car with two senior citizens, four people did. Oh, there was another one in the back seat, so there's three guys went up, one survived. I had to go up and claim the bodies, or identify the bodies. And then what really was hard to take, <clears throat> and it still kind of chokes me up, was talking and and listening to the mom of this big Ben, he was a wonderful guy, good football player, pretty good academic. He was a B plus student, and having to listen to his mom asking me all these anguishing questions, it was not, it was hell. It was it was a rotten experience, but I'm sure it was much worse for her because that was her son. That was, you know. All of us who've had sons <clears throat> can relate to that. Yes, sir. I didn't answer your question. I don't know if there is an answer. I think there has to be some. There has to be. Some, there has to be some initiatives taken, and it has to. You know, I think it's summarizing. It would have to be from the government, because industry is not going to. Industry is going to maximize their profits as the you know as they tend to do so for all the reasons that they give you every every time they raise an issue like this, but government has, and the government won't do it because they get tax revenues. And the tax revenues are not enough to cover the cost of health care, uh, lost productivity, policing, and so forth. Um, Austin Fennell, thanks, Hal, for uh, speaking to us today. Um, I, you reminded me a little bit about a previous speaker who addressed the issue in her own way here in Lethbridge quite some years ago. Her name was Nellie McClung. Uh -huh. So the question I want to raise is why did prohibition fail? Oh, Lord. My, my answer to that quickly is was before my time. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> not a fair question. I'm not a historian of prohibition, but I mean, I think it goes back to like what Tots was just saying. When he was told not to do something, he did it. You know, and that's what... The, you know, young people do. A lot of people do. We don't like to be told not to do something, even if it is in our best interest. So there's, a, you know, there's just a, a, I think a typical reaction to say, ah, oh, you know, blank be blank, I'm going to do it anyhow. Did you have an answer to your own question? Go ahead. Next question. Okay. My name is Serena. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, yes. Good luck. My name's Lorraine Fitzgerald, 
And I'm just wondering, have you done any research on if there's an alcoholic parent, um, how does that pass, can that pass on to the children? Do they, is it hereditary or is there a familial thing or, because you hear quite often that one or another parent is an alcoholic mm. and sure enough one of the siblings, or I mean one of the offsprings of that parent. Sorry? One of the offsprings of the parent, of the alcoholic parent. Well there's that tendency, I would say that probably a pretty good probability that if the parent, if the parent is, um, sorry, the parent is, has an alcoholic problem, uh, there will be effects on the children. Um, now, number one, that could be genetic, like Maggie. Maggie and this kid that, that torched my house, that was genetic. I mean, you know, they, they had uh, um, uh, deficiencies in their, in their physical composition. So whether they wanted to, like Clifford, he was born an alcoholic. And even though he was, when he torched my house, he was 18, 19, somewhere around that age. But, you know, that's a tale of two tragedies. That was the, that was the, the title I used for my, uh, my victim statement, Tale of Two Tragedies. His was a bigger tragedy than mine. But uh, we lost a lot. But he, he, has, he has a lifetime of that from whatever age he was in, 1819, through, I mean, it wasn't going to go away. So, you know, there's a genetic element to it. And then you get into the, to the cultural, you know, the family, like Maggie. Her mom drank. Her dad was almost a teetotaler. He provided some balance, and, and she, Maggie was really quite uh, well related to her father, more so than her mother. She, she didn't like her mother. She called her some nasty names I won't repeat in this company, but, um, but even so, the, you know, then in the sociability, so it, it's, it's, it's so inter linked and related, it's, it's hard to factor them out, but those are, are elements. So probably somewhere down the family tree, it started somewhere, and it can pop up through. Can be that, was certainly tree. that. That's yeah, often okay. the case, but there are these other causes and, and effects too, eh? Okay, next question, please. Hi, Al. Hi. <coughs> Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Um, you talked about in the little sheet that you handed out to us, fetal alcohol syndrome boy. We don't talk about people with disabilities by labeling them with their affliction. The correct way to do that is to say a boy who was affected by fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, just like a person who has mental illness, you don't call that a mental, mentally ill person. Say a person who has a mental illness. We don't define an entire person by one aspect of the individual. So just to think about that when you're doing things further. And in terms of genetics, there is no evidence to show that we can have a propensity uh, that would, something can be passed on uh, from one parent to the next through, uh, uh, if a parent is is alcoholic, that the kid would be alcoholic. Instead, if the parent, if the father 
is an alcoholic, and he be, he and his wife become, or he and his girlfriend, whatever, become pregnant. Then it in the year prior to that pregnancy, if he has been an alcoholic, that baby can have fetal alcohol syndrome if there's been extreme alcohol abuse. With the mother, the way that the fetal alcohol syndrome works there is if the mother is pregnant and she is drinking, and it seems, it seems like they can't figure out exactly, they haven't quantified exactly how much alcohol is, uh, is needed to bring on fetal alcohol effects, it's called FAE, the effect of alcoholism, that's, that can happen at any point. Yeah, I, I see it, I, I see it. But fetal alcohol syndrome is from the mom uh, drinking quite a bit. So this brings me to my point and my question. Um, you didn't talk about people in who use alcohol as self-medicating. And um, it, it seems to me that we, we actually could be in a situation where self-medication would be on the downturn with bullying and sexual abuse and all these things being brought out in the public sphere. I was, I was hopeful for a little while and until we saw what happened in the cells of us where children were being ripped away from their mom's breasts and parents put in detention and the children scattered to the far winds. So it seems to me that um, it's very difficult to know which way we're going in terms of self-medicating when we're creating more problems than we're solving. What do you think? So your question has to do with self-medicating? <laughs> yes. Um, self-medicating. I, I think that that's a rare exception, that self-medicating has any medical or health benefits. Uh, I cannot say, you said I didn't cover this, there's a lot I didn't cover. Matter of fact, most of it I didn't cover because it's just so vast. But um, the, about the only evidence that I have seen as far as self-medicating goes is maybe the occasional, uh, maybe like one a day glasses of wine. And that's, you know, I know of no other evidence that, that, or experience that I've had, and maybe you do, uh, about self-medicating, but I think I, 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 I'm wary of that. I think that's a, a misleading concept, and it's very much like this Dan who said, well, you know, when he was an alcoholic, and, and he, he admitted later on he was always an alcoholic, but while he was a you know, before he was a recovering alcoholic, he uh, he drank uh, to be sociable. And there's all these, quote, reasons or rationale for drinking. And a lot of it's just, you know, it just doesn't hold up. It's, it's basically, you know, the sociability, I guess, is the big factor. 
uh, and addiction would be. Uh, yes, thank you for your presentation, uh, Bev Trainer. Uh, the most current research that I have read and heard, and don't ask me to quote the authors other than they're prominent people who have done this, this research, is that uh, genetically, people who are alcoholics over a long term, it can alter their genetic code, their DNA and their, you know, their genetic uh, uh, code, so to speak. And that as uh, can apparently, they don't know this for certain at this point from what I have read, uh, whether or not over a period of time without being an alcoholic, that can be repaired. They're still in a quandary about that and still reach, researching it. But with a, a continual alcoholic that has that genetic code changed, that can be passed on to their offspring and it carries on with young people who have a genetic code that's different and can be alcoholics if they, if they, uh, when, they when they grow up or from the time that they're very young. So if you know anything in that regard, uh, I'd appreciate hearing it. Thank you. No, I, I really... Yes, sir. Hold <laughs> Old habits are hard to break. I, when I was teaching, I was roaming all over the place, and I could, I could speak to crowds in in some of those places in Russia that were huge, and not have to use a mic. A mic is a foreign object, and anyhow, thank you. Um, back to the question, I, I, I'm really not knowledgeable uh, about. Yeah, any more specifics, uh, but it's a it's a vast vast area that uh, is you know the research is, is expanding and, and it's so complicated. I mean, it's beyond my understanding of physiology <coughs> or biology or any of those ologies. Uh, that's not my expertise, and I don't profess to uh, to have that expertise. Uh, I'm a management man. What am I doing in <laughs> in this area? But uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm you know, it's positive that there's these initiatives being taken to get a better understanding. But I think the understanding is enough now that they could take some action to to rein in these these uh, serious socioeconomic problems that we have with alcohol abuse. Hello, well, thank you, uh, Mary Shillington. I'm a retired clinical social worker uh, and did some studies on alcoholism and uh, addiction and so on through my programs. Uh, what I did observe was, um, in my counseling, uh, some personality traits mm -hmm. of a number of people who were alcoholics. Often they were avoiders uh, and they didn't deal with things and they used the alcohol to avoid having to deal with, which of course increased things that they had to avoid more, uh, like money and so on. Uh, and, and then we had a personal experience with our son 
who was an alcoholic. He had a very addictive personality, and so maybe you can comment on this if you have some knowledge about it, but he had several things that he was addicted to, uh, cigarettes and alcohol and at one point gambling, and he knew he shouldn't do drugs because he be would become addicted very quickly. So there was some knowledge there for him. Uh, but the other thing he said when we challenged him about the alcohol was, well, I really like the taste of it. And, and he didn't necessarily, he's an introvert, so he didn't necessarily uh, need, to, need to drink with other people. He could drink quite happily by himself. And uh, so, like different personalities, I think are, are uh, because he was adopted, we didn't know what his, totally what his genetics uh, were a part of that. But I think there are some personality traits, and I'm wondering if you've experienced any of that. Okay? Mm -hmm. Oh, very excellent question. Before I answer it, I sure like your hat. <laughs> well, it reminds me of going to uh, the play up in Rosebud last weekend. It's called uh, Joseph and the Multi Technicolor Dreamcoat. And that's a great play. But that's, that's beside the point. Yes, yes. There, there's, a, there's a matter of fact, I think that's been one of the major. Uh, focuses on a lot of the uh, the research has to be in, on uh, on personality and it kind of relates to cultures and, and the social. So again, the social psychology and and they're so interrelated in regard to uh, alcohol abuse. And uh, you know, I don't know where the, where it ends. I mean, it's so pervasive. But you know, you start out with kids and younger and younger all the time. Uh, yeah, I hearken back to my childhood and teens. You know, alcohol was not something we did. Now, mind you, I came from a small town, and there's a lot of social pressures and monitoring of behavior, and yeah, I suppose if I you know, had gotten into drinking, Lord, drugs were not even existing, I would have heard from my parents. But anyhow, so there's, there's an integration or interrelationship between, you know, the, the, the psychology, the individual, and their, their social context. Now, your, your son's situation is really quite interesting, uh, but I, I can think of students that I had at counseling in university, and there was some um, significant personality uh, traits there. Roger, I mentioned, little guy, good guy. Well, they're all good guys, but he had a, he had a social problem because he was he was a, a little guy and he had a, he had a uh, a complex. And there was another fellow by the name of Larry. Larry was introverted too. And Larry was tended to be homosexual and. He had a big hanging up with his, with his um, pimples, complexion. And also, in, in listening to his t tales of woe, um, he, um, he had a, a sibling, an older sibling, who was the prize of the family. You know, and Larry was kind of the ugly duckling. Wow. Did that ever warp his his psychic and his self-image? You know, 
he, he, was, he was a lost soul. Well, fortunately, we were able to talk him into becoming a, a member of the fraternity, and that kind of opened up a, a new uh, set of relationships for him. He even started going out with girls. And that was no insignificant achievement from being what he was to what he ended up, well, as far as my regime went, the, the couple of years of counseling those kids, it was a big advance. He kept them in school, too. So that's about as much as I can Okay. Thanks very much. Time is up anyway. I'll, uh, and it can probably be said that if we thought that the uh, Fighting the tobacco industry was a hard thing to do. I, I would say that the beer and liquor industry would be much harder if we want to have labels put on bottles and stuff like that. That will be a tremendous uh, challenge to get that done, I'm sure. But whether it should be done or not, I, that's not up to me to say. But anyway, thanks very much, Al, for your presentation you and your answers, and uh, 